Well, as you're seated now, please open to Genesis chapter 17. And uh, Genesis 17, we're, we're already 17 chapters into Genesis as we uh, continue this study of the Word of God in the beginnings, the, the, the many beginnings that begin in Genesis. Genesis 17, verse 1, we'll read together. When Abram was 99 years old, the Lord appeared to Abram and said to him, I am God Almighty. Walk before me and be blameless, that I may make my covenant between me and you and may multiply you greatly. Then Abram fell on his face. And God said to him, Behold, my covenant is with you, and you shall be the father of a multitude of nations. No longer shall your name be called Abram, but your name shall be called Abraham. For I have made you the father of a multitude of nations. I will make you exceedingly fruitful, and I will make you into nations, and kings shall come from you. And I will establish my covenant between me and you and your offspring after you throughout your generations for an everlasting covenant to be God to you and to your offspring after you. And I will give to you and to your offspring after you the land of your sojournings, all the land of Canaan, for an everlasting possession, and I will be their God. And God said to Abraham, As for you, you shall keep my covenant, you and your offspring, after you throughout your generations. This is my covenant, which you shall keep between me and you and your offspring after you. Every male among you shall be circumcised. You shall be circumcised in the flesh of your foreskins, and it shall be a sign of the covenant between me and you. He who is eight days old among you shall be circumcised. Every male throughout your generations, whether born in your house or bought with your money, or from any foreigner who is not of your offspring, both he, and, both he who is born in your house and he who is bought with your money shall surely be circumcised. So shall my covenant be in your flesh, an everlasting covenant. Any uncircumcised male who is not circumcised in the flesh of his foreskin shall be cut off. From his people, for he has broken my covenant. And God said to Abraham, As for Sarai, your wife, you shall not call her name Sarai, but Sarah shall be her name. I will bless her, and moreover, I will give you a son by her. I will bless her, and she shall become nations. Kings of people shall come from her. Then Abraham fell on his face and laughed and said to himself, Shall a child be born to a man who is a hundred years old? Shall Sarah, who is 90 years old, bear a child? And Abraham said to God, Oh, that Ishmael might live before you. And God said, No. But Sarah, your wife, shall bear you a son, and you shall call his name Isaac. I will establish my covenant with him as an everlasting covenant for his offspring after him. As for Ishmael, I have heard you. Behold, I have blessed him and will make him fruitful and multiply him greatly. He shall father twelve princes, and I will make him into a great nation, but I will establish my covenant with Isaac, whom Sarah shall bear to you at this time next year. And when he had finished talking with him, God went up from Abraham. Then Abraham took Ishmael his son, and all those born in his house, or bought with his money, every male among the men of Abraham's house, and he circumcised the flesh of their foreskins that very day, as God had said to him. Abraham was 99 years old when he was circumcised in the flesh of his foreskin, and Ishmael his son was 13 years old when he was circumcised in the flesh of his foreskin. 
That very day, Abraham and his son Ishmael were circumcised, and all the men of his house, those born in the house and those bought with money from a foreigner, were circumcised with him. Father, we thank you for your word, your perfect word. God, I pray that you would implant this deeply within us, Lord, that you would teach us and show us what you desire from our hearts. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, we are continuing our study in the life of faith, the life of a person of faith, because we're still looking at Abram, a man who lived by faith. We looked at how Hebrews 11 tells us that Abram is an exemplary life of faith. He's an example for us, not perfect. But as God called him out of idolatry, from paganism, changed him into a God-believer, a God-follower, he is changing him and he's growing his faith. And the focus in chapter 17 is on that growth of Abraham and Abram's faith, the evidence of a growing faith. Now, that would be pretty encouraging to us to know, right? Is my faith growing? Is my faith growing in the Lord? That would be encouraging because we know that our faith is tested during trials. It's tested during the the hard times, the afflictions that come. But wouldn't it be nice to know if our faith was actually growing in the meantime and, and increasing before we actually had to be tested to find out what our faith is made of? Is it growing? How can we tell? What does it look like? There are a lot of confusing messages out there about what growing faith looks like. Does growing faith look like being happier? Can you tell that somebody's full of faith because they have a smile on their face all the time? Is it uh, somebody that's waiting patiently for miracles like healings or for provision? You know, I'm waiting for God to give me this and so I have faith. I have growing faith. Is that what it looks like? And, and the message out there so often is, well, you didn't get it because you didn't have enough faith? Is it accomplishing more? Somebody has faith because they have more success. Is that what it looks like? So many times you hear successful people, wealthy, powerful people attribute their success to faith, right? I just had to have faith. I just had to wait it out. And then I, I finally got what I wanted. I finally got where I wanted to be. And I just had to hold out when things were tough. See, some of these are, they're just misunderstandings of what faith really is. We get the idea that faith is just that feeling that gets you through, that kind of pushes you through to the end, right? You just have to try to make it stronger. Just, just believe more. Just drum it up within yourself. Make it happen. Do whatever it takes to grow stronger in what you believe, whatever it is that you believe. Just, just do it, right? That's what faith is. And one of the biggest misconceptions that we get from teaching on faith is that faith will bring about great things in your life, right? You get that idea so often from people that talk about faith. I mean, look at Abram. He was a pagan, now he's a, now he's a believer, and look at the great things God did through him. Look at Joseph and all of the wonderful things that, that God did through him. Look at the 12 disciples, right? I mean, all that they accomplished, God used their faith. But God does not always have great things planned for all of his people. There have been millions of people who have believed in God throughout the history of mankind, and only a few are listed here in the scriptures as doing great things. And they had faith in what God called them to do, but will we have faith to do what God has called us to do, even if that doesn't mean great things? That's sort of the question for us. There are a lot of ideas about what a strong faith or a growing faith looks like, and most of them out there are wrong. Most of them out there are wrong. 
at least if we're talking about what a biblical faith looks like. Biblical faith, as we've been talking about, is hearing the Word of God. It's internalizing it and believing it and then acting out what we believe, what we know, because we're staking our eternity on what God has said, and we're staking our life right now on what God has said. It's the fervent action in the hearing. That spells faith, right? That's what we've been talking about. That's what we've been learning. Now, again, we've learned that this is where faith comes from, by, from the Word of God, but how does it grow? Right, how can I tell if it's growing? Because faith doesn't just come to us and then that's it. God gives us faith and then we just sit back and relax. Faith is either growing or it's shriveling. We're either growing in our faith or it's shriveling. And often, either the growing or the shriveling happens inside us and we don't even realize when it's happening. We can be growing We can be growing stronger in our faith and not realize it. We can be shriveling up in our faith and have no idea because our feelings are not our faith. Our feelings can be affected by our faith, but our feelings are not faith. Feelings are not a good way to figure out whether I have faith or whether my faith is growing. Feeling happy, feeling successful, waiting for whatever we think God is going to give us, making ourselves believe, none of that is faith. None of that is a growing faith. So chapter 17 is really going to show us some evidences of an increasing faith, a growing faith. Whether we feel it or not, whether we accomplish great things or not, this is a life of faithfulness in God. And and we don't want to minimize this because because this is what we're called to, a life of faith in God, whether great things come through us or not. So so we see four parts here in Genesis 17 of a a growing faith, four four tests for us, four parts to this test of whether our faith is growing, okay? So we're going to look at it, verses 1 through 8. Number one, a growing faith increasingly believes God's promises, increasingly believes God's promises. Now, we're going to spend a few minutes on this. Because Abram is now 99 years old. It's been 24 years since God called him out of the land that he was in to come to this land and have offspring and have a promise, a covenant. And he doesn't have anything yet. He doesn't have any land. He doesn't even have one single son yet that is the promised son. And, and over those, those years, uh, the covenant has been put at great risk. When, when Sarai was taken from Abram in Egypt... Uh, w- when Abram thought that, that he could come up with an alternate plan to God's, uh, so many different ways in those serious missteps, God's covenant has been threatened, but he's been faithful. He's seeing it through, and, and he's been working in Abram also to make Abram overall very faithful, a man living in faith. The overall course of Abram's life in the past 24 years has been faithful, but it's been now in this chapter, verse 1 here, it's been 13 years since what we covered last week. 13 years. And we read over that, but just consider that. Remember, they had already waited 10 years, and then they got impatient, and they said, let's come up with another plan. Now they've waited another 13 years. But this time, in this 13 years, Abram's been faithful. He's been waiting, waiting for God's promise. And and we don't see that there's been any kind of magical candles that have stayed lit for the whole time. We don't see miracles around him to help him. We don't see any kind of these things that we would hope would happen. He's just been living day after day, every day, every moment for the past 13 years, waiting for God's promise, waiting faithfully. And he's had those few missteps, 
But during that time, God has been strengthening Abram. And he may not have felt it. We don't see, you know, just testimony from Abram about, oh, I can tell that God's growing my faith. You know, I can just tell I'm stronger every day. He's just living out that faith every day. And so we might see that as nothing exemplary happening, nothing going on, not worthy of anything being written down, but that is where God has proven faithful in those moments. Every day, day after day, week after week, month after month, year after year, God's strengthening us even when we don't feel it and nothing great is happening. Nothing extraordinary is happening. But here in 17, chapter 17 now, God comes to Abram and he says, Abram, it's time. It's time for it to happen. And he leads with this, I am God Almighty. Now, the same capital letters, L-O-R-D, Lord, in the first part of the verse, Yahweh, it's the same God, but this is what's important for Abram to understand and for us to understand. Here is God Almighty, El Shaddai. That is a, that is a name for God. That's what God leads with, not, Abram, what's up? I forgot all about you. Listen, it's time now right? Not, oh, Abram, how's it going? No. He says, you need to know the one who's in charge of everything. You've got to know God Almighty. Now, experts struggle in like how the word came about, the origin of the word, but it really does mean all-powerful, the overcomer, the overwhelmer, El Shaddai, God Almighty. Simply by the power of his voice, he spoke into existence everything. Simply by his decision to allow everything to continue, it does. He holds it all together by the power of his voice. And he's not stopped doing any of that because there's nothing impossible for God. There's nothing difficult for God. There's never been one time where God has strained at something, right? Has there ever been one time where God said, ah, you know, I tried that, it didn't work out so well. <laughs> so, so I did something else. Everything God does, everything he does is successful because he is the all-powerful one, the big God, the overcomer-overwhelmer. Even overcoming the obstacles that Abram himself has thrown in God's way to, to, to derail God's covenant, God has said, no, I'm still going to have my, my plan accomplished. Do you remember when Nebuchadnezzar, the greatest king in the world at the time, was humbled before God? And when he came back to his senses, he proclaimed his God, his dominion is an everlasting dominion. His kingdom endures from generation to generation. Here's what he says. All the inhabitants of the earth are, as, are counted as nothing. If all of us ganged up on God, do you think we could overwhelm him? Not a chance. He's too big. He's too almighty. And, and he does according to his will among the host of heaven and among the inhabitants of the earth. That's what Nebuchadnezzar says. This is the almighty God. None can stay his hand or say to him, what have you done? Like, what, what, did, what did you do, God? Why did you do that? This is power. This is amazing power and strength and might that we don't understand on this earth. This name for God, almighty God, is used 48 times in the Old Testament. It's such an important part of who God is in our understanding of who he is. He's not just strong God. He's the strongest God, stronger than anyone or anything. Don't anybody, don't ever let anybody tell you that there is a cosmic struggle between good and evil and, and it's, there's a balance between light and dark and, and it's just gonna continue that way. No, because God is so much stronger than any darkness or any kind of anything else. He is the all-powerful God, no one can match him. 
Now, we're making a big deal out of this because God is a big deal. <laughs> we're making such a big deal out of El Shaddai, mighty God, almighty God, because this is a big deal. He is the biggest, the grandest, the mightiest. And when we're worried, when we're in fear, when we are anxious, our minds are not on who this God really is. Because we may intellectually know all of those things we just said, and we may intellectually know more than all of those things. Like, I know that God can do this, and God has done that, and all of these wonderful things. But when it comes down to it in our life, what do we know? Do we know this God this way? Because I guarantee you, I promise you, that when you are struggling with fear and doubt and anxiety and worry, God is not the almighty, all-powerful God who's in charge of everything. In fact, I can promise you right now, without being able to see into your mind and heart, that your view of God right now is too small. He, he, he surpasses what we can even imagine because our minds are finite, and God is eternal. And, and he's above all of this. He's, he's above and beyond. Uh, Jeremiah uh, tells us in Jeremiah 23, 24, that God fills heaven and earth. 1 Kings 8, 27 says, heaven and the highest heaven cannot contain God. Our finite minds cannot grasp all that he is. And so even right now as we're in church and we've got the highest thoughts of God right now and we've just sung, how great thou art, we still haven't gotten a big enough view of God. And it's most evident in those times of weakness. When we begin to expand our view of God, seek to know Him, that's when our thinking changes. That's when our perspective changes about the things that are happening and the things that aren't happening and the things that might happen that I'm fearful of. Our thoughts will change, our feelings will change, our actions will change when we grasp more of who this God is, this El Shaddai God, you know, this is not dry theology. This is life-changing, eternity-staking kind of truth about who God is. That makes us different from all others on the earth who, who worship false gods, who, who worship gods that aren't. It makes us different, not, not to mention the gospel that we proclaimed this morning in, in the Lord's Supper and communion. We, that makes us different, but it begins fundamentally with this God. In Exodus 33, God tells Moses, you're going to take these people and you're going to move out. You're going to go on from this familiar place of Mount Sinai. And Moses says, don't send us out unless you come with us. And the reason, Moses says, is because you're with us. If you're not with us, then don't send us out because you're, you make us distinct. Moses says that makes us distinct from every other people on the face of the earth when God, the Almighty, is with us. So expand our view. Continue to expand our view. You can't, you can't think God is bigger than he is. There's no way that you can, you can make up something that God isn't or can't do. Now, we do have a one word of caution there is one word of caution here for us as we, as we think about the almighty El Shaddai God. Again, it's used 48 times, but 31 of those are in the book of Job. And so many of those, I looked at all of those in Job, and so many of those are spoken by Job's friends. And if you remember, at the end of Job, Job's friends were rebuked because God said, they have not spoken what is right about me. So you say, wait a minute. 
God says he's almighty God. He says he's El Shaddai. 31 times Job and his friends say that in the book of Job. But God comes and he corrects Job and he rebukes his friends. How, how did they get it wrong? How did they get off so bad? The answer is in chapters 38 to 41 when God confronts Job. He comes to see him and, and he tells him who he is. In all of the uses throughout Job until chapter 38, the Shaddai, the Almighty One in Job's friends was a God of punishment and a God of just of, of discipline and a God who comes down on anybody that messes up and he hasn't come down on us because we're righteous. We're doing great. We're so wonderful. So God hasn't come down, but he's coming down on you. He's going to get you because you've messed up, right? That's who this God is, the El Shaddai God in their minds. They had no concept that nobody is righteous before God. Nobody earns anything from God. He gives all things to us in his grace. But there was no place in their minds for the Almighty One to be anything other than just angry and mean and, and judge. But in his power, if you read chapters 38 to 41 of Job, in his great almighty power, he's the God that provides. He's the God that, that protects and guides and loves See, even when, we get a, even when we get a picture of who God is and the greatness of his power, we can still get off track and, and, and misunderstand, misapply. And so the caution here is to exalt this God, lift this God higher and higher in our minds because he is already high and lifted up. He is already exalted. But seek him in his exaltedness to understand more of who he is, even in his power, even in his greatness. Because we will still find out more about him. <clears throat> Excuse me. <clears throat> the allergies out there because of the rain have just driven my throat crazy. So forgive me for my voice. <laughs> but there is nothing that will help us more through life, through hard times, through trials, through the various afflictions that come, nothing that will help us more than knowing this God, relying on this God. Now, we haven't even made it out of verse 1 yet, so we need to get moving. <clears throat> because God is the Almighty, he tells Abram, walk before me and be blameless. And maybe better, it's walk before me and then you will be blameless. Because I'm Almighty God, because I'm, I have revealed myself to you, you understand, you have faith in me, now walk before me. And when you do that, you will be blameless. People will know that you are upright. You're a different person. The idea is that God's going this way, so get in his way. Don't, don't get out of God's way. Don't go to the right or to the left. I mean, if God's going this way, then I'm going this way. And, and he's not leading me, dragging me along like I'm resistant or don't want to do it. He's right behind me. He's watching me every step. <clears throat> he's directing me and he's protecting me. He can see everything that might happen, anything that might come against me. He's behind me and I'm walking before him <clears throat> in his ways. You have Psalm 119 in your notes, verses 1 to 3, blessed are those whose way is blameless, who walk in the law of the Lord. That's a blessing. That's a happiness. That's a, that's a peace and a rest. Blessed are those who keep his testimonies, who seek him with their whole heart, who do also do no wrong but walk in his ways. That's God's counsel for Abram. Walk in my ways. I'm the God Almighty. Now walk before me. Abram, you need to do that. That's God's counsel for us as well. Walk in my ways. Walk before me. What's the motivation for Abram? Verse 2 says that I may make my covenant between me and you and multiply you. Now the question that should be in your mind right now is, 
I thought he already made the covenant. Didn't he make the covenant back in chapter 15? Why is he saying, I'll make it with you now, here in chapter 17? And in chapter 15, on that day, the Lord did make the covenant with Abram. The word is cut. He cut the covenant in chapter 15. This word for make is the word natan, to give. It's now given to you. It's time. It's time to get going. Like the, the name Nathaniel, given by God. That's that, that same root word. But he's saying, walk before me and be blameless because it's time. The covenant is now. And so at that moment, Abraham jumps for joy and says, finally, yes, God's doing what he finally said he was going to do. I'm finally getting what I had coming to me, right? He falls down on his face. He's, he's thinking rightly. He falls down on his face and he doesn't say a thing. He just worships God. He worships God. And you can see his growth in faith because in chapter 15, when God came to him and said, I'm going to establish my covenant, I'm going to make my covenant with you, Abram said, but God, I've got these concerns. I've got these worries. Uh, you know, I don't have a son. What more could you give me? Can, can, couldn't, we just use, couldn't, couldn't we just use my servant Eliezer? And he was right to pour out his concerns. But 23 years later, after God has been working in him and growing his faith, now he doesn't ask any questions. He doesn't say, God, here's my concern. He just falls on his face and says, okay, God. Do you see the growth in his faith? There's a humble submission here. Now, he's not perfect. He hasn't arrived, and we're going to see that in a few minutes. But there's growth in this man's faith. So in verses 6 through 8, God spells out the promises, and Abram just listens. He listens, and he believes them. And so because of that, God has a change for Abram. There's, there's something big happening now. The covenant's coming, so now your name changes, Abram. It changes from Abram to Abraham. Now, why does he do that? The idea here is that now people are going to know you because of me because of what I do in you. That's what people are going to know you by. Not because of Abram, the exalted father, probably talking about his father, Terah. Not because of your exalted father, but because of what I'm doing in you. People are going to call you Abraham, father of a multitude. Because Abram, you couldn't do that on your own. You, you couldn't accomplish that. But God says here, no longer shall your name be called Abram, but Abraham, because, verse 5 says, because I have made you the father of a multitude, because I will make you exceedingly fruitful, and I will make you into nations. Do you see what God's doing? You need to be known by what I do in you. Brother and sister in Christ, is that what people know about you and me? When people see you, when people hear your name, do they think, oh, that's that person that likes to argue all the time? <laughs> Oh, that's that person that, that uh, they're just mean-spirited. You know, th oh, that's that conspiracy theorist. Everything's a conspiracy and everything's just crazy and, and you know, QAnon follower and, and <laughs> that's all that person is. People should not know us because of how argumentative we are, because of what we think we know, because of, because of what brand of ice cream is best. <laughs> They shouldn't know those things. They should, they should know about us what God is doing in us, who our God is. It's amazing how many Christians are known not for our God, not for our Lord Jesus Christ who works within us, but because of what they like to do, what they like to say, what they like to be about. And then, those are the people that say, I have strong faith, <laughs> right? I have strong faith because everybody around me knows what stance I take on political issues, because everybody around me knows 
what my opinions are all the time. That, that's not a strong faith. A strong faith is, this, is the person that people know what God is like through them. That's when we can see that growing faith. We're believing God's promises. So Abram has his name changed into what God and only God can do, Abraham. So Abraham believes God's promises, and he's going to be the one to communicate them. Every time somebody, every time he introduces himself, <clears throat> hi, my name is Abraham. <clears throat> Why is your name Abraham? You don't even have a son yet. <laughs> because that's what God's going to do. That's who God is. The El Shaddai, the God of seeing, the God of hearing. <clears throat> now, what does it look like? when we're not believing God's promises. That's what Abraham is doing here. He's believing God's promises. But for us, when we're not believing his promises, we don't understand and we don't follow God, the Almighty, it can look like, like we talked about, the doubt, the fear, the worry, the anxiety. You know, I'm I'm just, I don't want to, I don't want to do that. I, I can't do that. I'm too afraid. What might happen? Now, those thoughts that come to us are not necessarily sin. Those, those things that happen in our minds are not the problem. It's when we spend the time dwelling on those instead of on God. So as we grow in our faith, the, those thoughts may appear less often, but they'll appear in shorter times, for a shorter period, as we attack them with the promises of God. You will have great victory over fear and doubt and worry and anxiety as you believe this God and his promises. So that's number one. We're, we're going to be spending successively less time on each of these points because they start to fit together and they start to become <clears throat> familiar to us. But number two, in verses nine through 14, a growing faith increasingly doesn't just believe God's promises but receives God's commands. Receives God's commands. Now, as God makes promises, as he changes us, commands come along with those. Directions, instructions, commands from God. If he has truly made us new, which we are in Jesus, we become new, we become changed in our behavior, in our way of life. That's why he told Abraham, be blameless, walk before me. But the outward sign is this command of circumcision for Abram and the people who would come after him. My covenant, verse 10 says, is that every male will be circumcised. That's the sign of the covenant. That's the covenant. But before we continue, notice the order. Abraham has God's covenant first. Then comes the outward sign, right? Abraham's not earning this covenant by obeying the sign. He's not obeying the commands, and then God gives him the the covenant. Right? We've got the order straight. And you've got Romans 4 to read in your notes to study that, to be reminded that we need to be clear about that order. God's grace comes to us before any of our works. But then the works do come. The works follow. The covenant of God came to Abraham by God's grace, not acting until we believe, but now that we have believed, the works come. And God who commands this, commands who is to do this, every male, <clears throat> When it's supposed to happen, eight days old, what that's supposed to be, circumcision, it's very specific. Now, I thought about this this week. Now, why this, why this sign? 
Why circumcision? Well, I mean, this is, this is um, <clears throat> there are a lot of different ways that God could have done this. A lot of different signs that God could have given, right? So why this one? Well, because first, in verse 11, this is a very personal sign. Who else is going to see this? <laughs> when, a, when, a, when a boy is circumcised, nobody else is going to see that sign for the rest of his life, right? Only him. Only he will see that. It's a personal sign to remind you personally that you are committed, you're dedicated to God. Another reason is because it's a pervasive sign. It doesn't matter your station in life. If you're a servant, if you're a foreigner, if you are a recent convert, if you have been born in, all males will have done this sign, and it's a sign that's that's a participation, it's an agreement in the covenant of God. Now, it does exclude females, but I think this isn't a time when it's okay to, to exclude females. Really, that's more mutilation for females. It doesn't serve any benefit or purpose. But for males, it actually is, it becomes beneficial. It becomes medically beneficial. And that's not the reason for the sign, but that's God's goodness, again, in, in his people, with his people. Another reason for this particular sign is that it's a permanent sign. Verse 13 says this is an everlasting covenant. And so you're going to have a permanent sign in your body of this covenant. The reasons for this sign are it's personal, it's pervasive, it's permanent, but then also that it's prototypical. In, in verse 14, you see the strong warning here. You're going to be cut off from God and from his people. Why is that, why is that so strong? Because this is the beginning of the outward sign of participation in the covenant the outward sign of commitment and involvement and ongoing practice. So in other words, this is prototypical. This is representative of putting away evil, of putting away your your evil and, and, and your flesh and being devoted to the upright, pure ways of God. That was the reason for this sign in particular. They're devoted to God. And it starts where life begins, right where life begins. That's why it was such an important part of the covenant. This sign of the covenant, the warning for not being part of the covenant is you'll be cut off. Cut off your old ways. And if you're not cutting off your old ways and and signaling that by cutting off part of you, then you will be cut off from this covenant that has been cut. But that's what it's more about, the heart. It's more about the heart than the physical part of it. This is a sign. It's in the flesh. But more important is whether you have cut off and continue to cut out any part of you that is not wholly devoted to God. And tragically, for hundreds of years, for thousands of years, many of the people of Israel would be signaling that they were part of the covenant, but wouldn't be because their heart wasn't right. And that's why Jeremiah 4.4, God comes to his people and says, circumcise yourselves to the Lord. Remove the foreskin of your hearts. It's, it's within And Moses knew this. He he prophesied in in Deuteronomy 30. He said, you're going to fall away. As the people of Israel, you're going to fall away from God. You're going to rebel. He's going to kick you out of the land. He's going to exile you. But then he's going to bring you back when you repent. The Lord your God will circumcise your heart and the heart of your offspring so that you will love the Lord your God with all your heart and soul that you may live. That's what God's more interested in. And that's what God is about in the New Testament as well. That's why Paul explains in Romans 2 that circumcision is really a matter of the heart. It's cutting away what is not devoted to God, what what goes against God, what rebels against God. Cutting it all away so that we are wholly devoted to the Lord. 
So Abraham receives the commands of God. He believes the promises and he receives the commands. Because, brother and sister, the faithful person, the person who's growing in faith, doesn't try to have one without the other. We, we don't get to say, God, I, I like all the promises. I like all the things that you say you're going to do, but I don't like all the things that you say I have to do. <laughs> I, I don't like all of that stuff. When we're growing in our faith, we're, we're believing his promises, but we're also receiving his commands so that we live differently because we love him. And growing faith cares for both. So number three, in verses 15 to 21, not only does, does Abram believe and receive, but in number three, a growing faith increasingly leaves behind human effort. Leaves behind human effort. Now, during, during the chapter to this whole point, God is talking directly to Abram, Abraham. Abraham's been listening. It continues for the first two verses here. And God says, Sarai is going to be changed. Her name's going to be changed also. Now, the meaning is the same. Sarai, Sarah means princess in both cases. There, there's no change in meaning, but there's a change in who has named her. God has now named Sarah the princess. And, and, and there's, there could be a growing of, of the change from Sarai in her old culture to her new culture now belonging to God, but, but that's where the significance is. She belongs to the Lord, and he names her. But this is where we get to see that although Abraham's faith has been growing, he's not quite there yet. He, he has not arrived. Remember, he, he, he's 99 years old, and God comes to him and says, you're, you're going to have a son. And, and your, your 89-year-old wife is going to be the one to give birth to him. Now, if you're honest, and you're 99 years old, you might believe that you get to be a grandpa, <laughs> or a great-grandpa, or a great-great-grandpa, or great-great-grandma. But, but you're going to have a son. And this El Shaddai is the one who's telling you this. It's not just anybody telling Abram this. This is the God Almighty. And so the proper response is, Abram, fall down and worship. And he does that, but he does that with a bit of a laugh. Now, commentators disagree on whether it was like a laugh of joy or a laugh of some doubt. Really, it could be a little bit of both, couldn't it? That he falls before God, but this just isn't something easy to go along with. It's not just easy to believe. He said, can this really happen, Abraham says? Can, can it really happen? And as Paul teaches in Romans 4, it wasn't unbelief, but, but this is really outside the norm. This doesn't just normally happen. So he says, is this even possible? And then he says, oh, that Ishmael might live before you, God. Now, what Abraham is saying here is that, you know, He's already alive. God, can't, can't we just use Ishmael, the one who's already here? He's 13 already. Do I really have to start over at 100 years old with a newborn baby? <laughs> right? We right now have an almost six-month-old foster girl, and um, we're not even half Abraham's age at this point. <laughs> and she wakes us up at 4 o'clock or 3 o'clock or 2 o'clock in the morning, and we just don't have the energy that we used to have. Abraham saying, God, can't, you know, can't we just use Ishmael? He's already alive. He's already here. But you'll remember that Ishmael was the result of Abraham's work himself to try to get God's promise for himself. So God says, no. No, we're not using your efforts. We're not using man's efforts. Sarah will bear a son, and you're going to call his name, he laughs. That's going to be his name. 
Because right here, Abraham laughs. In the next chapter, Sarah herself is going to laugh. When Isaac is born, Ishmael is going to laugh at him. There's going to be a whole lot of people laughing at this, but God is the one who gets the last laugh. Because Isaac will be born, and Isaac will be the chosen son. But your works, Abraham, are nothing in God's plan. I don't need your works, God says. Can't we use some of my efforts, God? No. Paul says in Philippians 3, you know, he has all kinds of works. Pharisee of Pharisees, circumcised the eighth day, all of the works that Paul had, he says they're loss compared to the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. There's no man's works in the covenants of God that bring them about, that, that keep them. So God says, no, none of your works are part of this. The covenant will go to Isaac, not Ishmael. And then he, again, God launches into the I will, I will, I will, I have, I will. And, and he says that with, with Ishmael. He says, I've heard you about Ishmael. That's what Ishmael means, if you'll remember. I've heard, I will bless him, but not with the covenant. He's going to be a great nation, but this is my plan. So put away your plan and get back in line with God's plan. So at that point, the sovereign, powerful, almighty God has finished speaking. So he leaves. Verse 22 says he's done. He leaves, and he's done answering questions. This is the final answer. Abraham, leave behind your work. And he does. How do we know he does? Because not only does the faithful person who's growing in faith believe God's promises, not only does he receive the, the, the commands, not only does he leave behind his own efforts, but number four, to end, in verses 22 to 27, a growing faith increasingly conceives obedience. A growing faith increasingly conceives, brings forth obedience. Now, as we read the verses, if, if you're honest, we read verses 22 to 27, you might have thought, man, that's really redundant. Why are we reading those? Why do we have those in the Scripture? I mean, everything that was in there was already said. Why, did we have, why do we have it again? Why did we have to read it? Because this wasn't unnecessarily repetitive. This was Abraham's joy to, to obey. It, it was his joy to obey. Abraham took everything that God said seriously, and in joyful and immediate obedience, he obeyed. He says, in that day, Abraham said, this is what God has said. I'm believing his promises. I've got his commands. I've put away my own efforts. Now I need to get busy. I need to obey. And see, this is where it becomes kind of a sticking point to us because we've heard a lot of this before. We've seen a lot of this before, but this is where we stop short. We say, I agree. I know. I understand. But then we don't do it. And that's why Abraham, is, it's spelled out here so explicitly for us. He obeyed in every point and in every way, not because, again, not because he was trying to get the covenant. He already had the covenant. He already had God's grace. But now that he's got God's grace, now that he's got God himself there, he's walking with him, he says, this is my delight. This isn't a drudgery. This isn't redundant. This isn't just repetition. This is my joy. This is my hope. I, I want to do this. Faith is not just learning and hearing, but learning and hearing and doing. And it's not alone. Notice that Abraham works through this obedience within his entire community. The shared community that's there, they all work together in this, and they obey. They come together. And so in application, we begin with a question. 
are there promises that, that God has made to you that you have left out? Are there promises about who God is that we need to learn about, that we can hold on to? And then are there commands that you're ignoring as you hold on to the promises, as you hold on to who God is? Paul says in 1 Corinthians 7, neither circumcision or uncircumcision counts for anything but keeping the commandments of God. That's what God works in us to do. That's what he works in us to will to do and to want to do and to, and to do. Galatians 5, 6, Paul tells us in Christ Jesus, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision counts for anything, but only faith working through love. That's what counts, Paul says. Not in trying to obey commands to get saved, not in obeying commands to try to please God, but obeying because God has already made us pleasing to himself. And so our increasing faith increases in our knowledge and our love and our obedience. So seek the Lord in application. Seek the Lord with your whole heart and mind, both his promises and his commands. Those are the blanks there, the promises and the commands. They're, they're for our good and they're for his glory. That's what a growing faith looks like because then that is love for the Lord that produces godly obedience. Not legalism, not where you're coming up with your own ideas and I'm never going to watch a rated R movie again. I'm never going to have another sip of wine. I'm never going to, you know, whatever my ideas are that I come up with. No, it's not any of that. It's what God says, that's where my joy is. That's what I want to obey it's a godly obedience from love because I'm, I'm loving him and his promises and his commands. That is a growing faith. That's how you can tell that you're growing in faith when that becomes more real to you and more true of you. And God, we thank you that you are real and true. God, whether, whether we believe in you or not, God, when we are unfaithful or when we're faithful, God, you are the faithful God. You are true. Lord, you are alive. You have always been alive. You always will be alive. There's no power like yours. God, there's no judgment coming like your judgment. And yet, God, the grace and the mercy that you have for us, your people, overcomes even judgment. Father, we praise you for that truth. God, we proclaim that truth because it is good news, Lord, that we don't have to fall under your judgment and your wrath. We can fall in with fellowship with you and communion with you. God, that we can be with you forever with no fear, with no doubt, no worry or anxiety, Lord, no no shortcomings, no falling away. Lord, you hold on to us and you keep us. Father, what promises, what commands you have given. Lord, I pray that you would give us a greater love. Lord, a greater attention to those. And Lord, that it, would, that it would come out in our words and our actions. Father, that you'd be lifted up and exalted and praised. Lord, thank you for Jesus. Thank you that he did it all for us perfectly. And Lord, that he works in us to enable us to do it now. God, thank you. Thank you for our Savior. In his name, amen.